Good morning. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. That's from Daniel, the sixth chapter, 25 and 26. Welcome to all of you who have come and welcome to all of you who are watching the stream. I ask that the Lord would bless you. Special offering from last Sunday was $200 for the center. Uh, thanks to Sheila for uh, getting the funds over to the center. Thank you again to the Lapeer County EMS for providing our new defibrillator. Uh, you see Dr. Ed's uh, address there if you want to drop him a card. And uh, if you've been sending your offering in, you can now drop it in the offering box uh, as usual. Andrea's number there. Also take advantage of Days of Praise and Acts and Facts. They're here for the month of August. If you look down uh, through our uh, prayer list there, you see many st still struggling with uh, health issues. We pray that you'd keep them in front of the Lord. Lots to pray about in our times. Um, we want to remember the, the church. Um, I don't know if we're under direct persecution, but uh, I don't know if you've been following what uh, is happening out in California with Dr. MacArthur's church. But uh, they're meeting in defiance to the government's order and being threatened with legal action. So... Uh, we're thankful that we don't have that here, but um, it's a concern that that would happen in our country. So ask that you just keep our, uh, our country and our church in your prayers. Our scripture for meditation is from Daniel 6, read 15 through 28.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless us as we meet around his word. Our God and our Father, we ask this morning that you would meet with us, that we would turn our thoughts and our attention from the many distractions that we're enduring, that we might look into your word, that we might listen to your voice, that we might make application of what you've given us. Lord, it's our desire to uh, be more like Christ. We thank you for our pastor who's come prepared this morning to minister to us. We ask that the spirit would work through him and the spirit that indwells our hearts would work within us open your word to us we ask for this blessing in jesus name amen take your brown hymnals this morning and turn to number 573 573 in the brown
you. You may be seated. I'm looking for a favorite hymn this morning. Thought I saw two hands, but I guess not. Oh, over here, behind me. 493 in the brown. 493. And it's because. Not sure if you heard what he said or not, but he, he said it's his favorite song. He said he could speak for a long time on why, but a lot of it has to do with the words and the story behind. If you know anything about the, the story, the man who wrote it, Horatio Bonar, um, watched his family go down on a ship. He watched his daughters perish in just amazing, amazing faith in Christ.
Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans, the 13th chapter. Who knows what that chapter is called? Huh? Love. <laughs> it's all good stuff. Romans 13, we'll be reading 1 through 6. That's 17. 64 in the Pew Bible. Let's stand together. Take your brown hymnals again and turn to number 552, 552 in the brown. Stop. 
Feel like I'm going back to my kindergarten days. <laughs> have to have a high chair. <laughs> Our text is Romans 13. What a beautiful day outside. Wow. Our last message in the series on loving faith, we use the characters of Hebrews 11 as our model. <clears throat> we discovered the spiritual notaries of the past lived their daily lives by faith. Daily lives by faith. I meant that they did not just trust God for the biggie, even mortal lies in the text. You know, I, they're, they're, these are the biggies that they're known for, but they are, their whole lives was characterized by faith. We learn that faith is far more than just the beginning of the Christian life. We look at some definitions of faith, some wrong definitions. One wrong definition is that faith is an enabler. It's to help you achieve things in life with God that you could never do without him. That is the philosophy of a lot of the evangelists on TV. Let me say it again. You need faith in God because you can do things with God in your life that you couldn't do all by yourself. That's not what the Bible talks about as faith. Secondly, another wrong view of faith, that faith, you have faith in faith. That's called fideism. Just believe, no matter what you believe in, just, just believe. Got to have something to believe in, but it doesn't really much matter what it is, just so you believe it. Wrong view of faith. True biblical faith, the object of true biblical faith is always the God of the Bible. It's always the God of the Bible. We learn that faith is rational. It's intelligent. There are two sources of knowledge or faith. One is the revelation from God. The other is scientific investigation. 
revelation, God just gives it to you. You don't have to work for it. You just have to believe it. Well, where does he give it to us? In the book, in the Bible, in the word of God. He tells us this is what happened. Da, 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 da. Believe it or reject it. If you believe it, you're miles ahead of the world. Today, we turn our attention to what it means to be a faithful citizen under a government that perhaps is hostile to our faith. And that's becoming more and more prevalent in our day and in America than we would have thought. Let us pray. Our Lord, we just thank you for the privilege we have of studying the Word of God. We're thankful for the book, for the inspired words. Your Word does not change. That's why we can trust it. What you wrote here in Romans centuries ago applies today because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change, He doesn't have to change. He knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. He knows from the standpoint of creator and Lord of the universe. And it's a great grace on your part to share what you know, some of the things that you know with us. That's what we have in the Bible. Yes, the secret things belong to God and they're always going to belong to you, but the things you have revealed, the scripture says, belong to us and to our children after us. There is so much that's been revealed that it'll take us a lifetime to discover all that we should know and live by. And we still won't know it all until one day we are glorified with you. But we do praise and thank you for the fact that you have spoken you have not left us to our own devices and to our own ignorance, if indeed we will heed what you say. Bless the truth of your word to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for our opportunity to study together in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're going to turn our attention to what it means to be a faithful citizen. Faithful citizen under a government that perhaps is hostile to your faith. Or if not where it could be, at least it's on the way. The whole subject of noncompliance to government regulations, I think really is a hot topic in the Christian community because much of what our government stands for and what it promotes, true Christians oppose. Say, what do you mean? Well, think about it. Everything from being pro-abortion to the spending initiatives moving our country towards bankruptcy to global warming to a move in our country from democracy to socialism to disarmament to acceptance of Islam in our schools when Christianity is not accepted in our schools. These things and many others are a cause of great concern to thinking Christians. We read in our text Paul's injunction, 
Yes, here it is. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. It's a troubling statement for a lot of Christians. There is no authority except what God has established. Okay, so we go on and ask some other questions. Is the authority then absolute? In other words, may government do as it wills with the sanction of God upon it. Does the citizen have no right to assess government to be just or tyrannical? Is government free from the rule of God? Where does morality come into our submission? What's the role of conscience towards government authority? Well, the answers to these questions are not easy. The issues are very complex. They involve deep contemplation, comparing Scripture with Scripture, as well as an analysis of biblical examples. Hope to do some of that today. Some have refused to do this, and so their conscience, their conclusions in conscience is, is very simplistic. It goes something like this. Yes, we're to obey the governing authorities in all and every circumstance. Paul said it, I believe it, period. End of discussion. But if this is the only conclusion, then we run into grave difficulty in some of the biblical examples. Hmm. Including our Lord, who defied the idea of government having absolute authority. We want to look at this in detail today. What about being a faithful citizen? Well, here are some irrefutable truths. Number one, God alone is the sovereign ruler or governor of all people, not just the church. Not just the church. He is the sovereign ruler or governor of all people. Say, well, all people don't accept that. It doesn't matter what they accept. It doesn't change anything. God is God. We are his subjects. The nations are under his thumb, under his control, whether they like it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not. You cannot read verse 1 of our text and not see this. Paul boxes us into but one conclusion, both negatively and positively. Here's what he says. There is no authority that exists that can claim exemption of God's appointment. And again, every existing authority without exception exists because of, because of God's appointment. Wow. I mean, the universal sweep of these statements is unequivocal. No authority except? Really? The authorities that exist, God has established? Can that be true? We do not get to pick and choose. We do not get to say, well, uh, those governments which promote morality and kindness and peace, they're of God. But those which are immoral and hostile and evil, they're not of God. 
I remind you that when Paul wrote Romans 13, Nero was the emperor of Rome, the same emperor who would later order Paul's beheading for promoting the gospel in the empire. We could also add to Nero rulers like Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Mao of China, and a host of other modern tyrants who had no qualms whatsoever about butchering their own people in their lust for blood and totalitarian power. They joined the ranks of biblical examples like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Xerxes and Herod and Pilate. Nothing new under the sun, says Solomon. Those yesteryears had their tyrants, and we have our tyrants today. We do. And apart from inspiration, the fact that Paul would write such a sweeping statement of compliance to government authority indicates how seriously you must accept the concept that God is sovereign and establishes government under which you and I are citizens. This is irrefutable. You cannot mitigate this. You cannot sidestep this. You cannot ignore this. Any decision you make as a citizen of the USA has to remember this. Well, what must we remember? Let's read on. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Wow. So we're under obligation to God as well as to men to acquiesce to those people God has placed over us. Anything less would be anarchy, which is a stated reason in this text as to why God has established government. Look at verses 3 and 4. Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but, aha, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But, but, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Romans 13, verse 3 and 4. In other words, government establishes and enforces civil law. You may not like some laws, but you do not get to pick and choose what you will or will not obey unless and until the law of the land violates or conflicts the law of God. There's the first principle. But I think even here we are to be careful that we don't cross over into violating God's law in one area while attempting to promote it in another area. Let me give you as an example. Some years back, people were murdering abortion doctors. Remember that? 
And they were doing so in the name of opposing the killing of babies through abortion. <laughs> okay, we can have one kind of killing that's okay, so that it will prevent this other kind of killing that isn't okay. Think of the absurdity of that. Anarchy among the people can be and often is as wicked and devastating as a totalitarian or oppressive form of government. We're seeing some anarchy down out there in Portland. Things that are going on there. Mob rule is not under the control of government. Mob rule resulted in the reign of terror in France, orchestrated by Robespierre in France, who said, here's his words, terror is nothing other than justice, prompt, sure, severe, and inflexible. That was his idea of what terror was. And the guillotine of France was used to end the lives of, get it now, 30,000 people during the French Revolution. Boy, blood literally was flowing in the streets. And most of those executed were not, were not the aristocracy, but people who oppose the bloodshed of those who called themselves the patriots. All governments, <clears throat> understand this, all governments have a borrowed authority. It's borrowed. It's not absolute. The word authority is used by Paul six times in this text. Two Greek words combine. Kratos, the power to rule, when combined with the Greek word for people, demos, get it? Demoskratos, democracy, rule by the people, power of the people. Democratic rule. Or if you combine it with the Greek word for wealth, plutos, plutos plus kratos, then you have a plutocracy, the rule of the wealthy, the rich call the shots. And that's what you had in the French Revolution. But it was a bloody time. We should recognize that power is the ability to act without qualifiers. It can be legitimate or illegitimate. Depends on which way you go. We read in the newspapers all the time of a gunman going into a convenience store. Has his gun. Gun in hand. He has the power to make demands. Empty the cash register and do it quickly. But are we obligated to obey? He has the power. There it is with his gun. But is it legit? 
policeman also has a gun, but his power is legitimate, sanctioned as an enforcer of the law and a protector of the law abiding. But you see, power can be seized by one who has no authority. And that's when you have anarchy. And that's what we're seeing in Portland. Paul repeatedly uses the word authority in our text. The Greek word is exousia, a designated power. It's power, but not inherent power in the person or him, him or herself. But it's power bestowed by the real authority, in this case God. The word indicates a borrowed power with legitimacy, but also with accountability to the one who gave it. Remember Jesus' trial before Pilate? Pilate asked Jesus a battery of questions, and Jesus just stood there like a dummy. He stood there mute. He didn't open his mouth. He wouldn't say anything. This so infuriated Pilate, that he railed on Jesus. Do you refuse to speak to me? Says Pilate. He goes on. Don't you realize I have power. Exousia. I have the authority. Either to free you or to crucify you. John 19 verse 10. How would you answer a guy like that? Well Jesus answers in the next verse. Verse 11. You would have no power, exousia, no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. I want you to note that Jesus did not say, Pilate, you have no authority over me. That is not what he said. Instead, Jesus acknowledged Pilate's authority, but he pointed out to him that it was a borrowed authority, an authority residing in God alone, and that Pilate would be held accountable for how he used that power. I wonder what he thought when his wife came to him and said, have no dealings with this just The jealous and lying Jewish leaders who handed Jesus over to Pilate under false charges bore the greater sin, but Pilate was about to sin too. By using his authority to condemn one of whom he himself had concluded, I'm reading his testimony, I find no basis for a charge against him. John 19 verse 14. Or 19 verse 4, excuse me. What's he saying? He's saying Jesus is innocent. I know he's innocent. Yet he washed his hands of the matter. He gave in to the pressure of an angry mob. He caved. He had the authority to do as he pleased on that occasion. He was right in saying that freedom or crucifixion lay in his hands. That's true. The decision he made was wrong, 
but it was his decision nonetheless. And Jesus acquiesced. The lesson here is that Jesus was the model citizen. Teaching us all that in some matters, God alone must sort it out. We, like Christ, are to bow to the providence of God as we live under men with authority over us. This does not mean we fail to oppose what is evil about the ruling authority. Jesus was not silent. He challenged Pilate to consider his decision carefully. God was in heaven to whom he must give an account for his decision. He spoke the truth. This is our responsibility. It is our accountability. But our weaponry is not guns or guillotines or bombs or other instruments of death. Paul tells us, for though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have, our weapons have, divine power. What for? To demolish strongholds. How so? Paul goes on. We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5. I mean, think about this. If there's any sword in our hand, it is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ephesians 6, verse 17. That's the sword we use. So, we have this conundrum. We have state law whatever the government comes up with, and we have God's law. State law, God's law. And often it's anarchy versus law and order. I think, again, we're seeing this in Portland. Destruction of property. Oh, yeah, right. That really helps the cause, right? Smashing windows, turning cars over, setting things on fire. Destroying businesses that had nothing to do with anything. It's going on in Beirut, by the way, as well. On a grand scale. Over 100 people killed in the Beirut Square. Killed. Rioting. It's anarchy versus law and order. There's the two extremes. Think of what our country would be without government. We have been an emerging nation since the very beginning. At different times, lawlessness seemed to reign. Historians speak of the Wild West, by which they mean that beyond certain Western borders, the rule of law seemed to be non-existence. There were no sheriffs, no judges. People just fended for themselves sometimes boarding on criminal conduct themselves in their exercise of what they called justice. Remember the lynchings? 
people taking the law into their own hand. Innocent people were executed simply because <laughs> they were shepherds with sheep, not cattle barons with cattle. We have a whole history of the shepherd wars in our country. By the way, it's um, portrayed in the in the movie "Open Range" with Kevin Costner. He plays a free grazer who comes up against a ruthless land baron, who used brutal force against him and his companions to run the grazers off the prairie land. The law said that free grazing was legal on unfenced land, but this landowner didn't much care about the law. So he resorted to intimidation and brutality and even murder, and he used a crooked chair to do his dirty work. In the final showdown, Costner and his companions take on the land baron, but Costner becomes so enraged that he plans to shoot a wounded man struggling in the dirt to get away from the fight. And his companions step in by force and they say, Son, don't make this something bad. We aren't murderers. If you do this, you'll be just like them. And after some resistance, they prevail. Okay, what was the difference between shooting the bad guys in a gunfight and shooting a wounded bad man trying to escape death? Well, the law supported the right of the free grazers to defend themselves against assault and harm and to protect their cattle and their property and their own lives. That's true. But the law did not support them to shoot a wounded man in cold blood who was no longer a threat to them in any way, shape, or form. The first was an act of law and order. The second would have been an act of anarchy and murder. Government is given the authority to maintain order, to promote righteousness, and to punish wrongdoers, thus preventing anarchy as we read in verse 3 and 4. That's what government's for. Okay, but what happens when government does the reverse? What happens when government does the reverse? What happens when government punishes the good guy and commends the wicked guy? Mm. When it becomes the predator instead of the protector of the citizen. What principle allows for citizens to do more than simply protest by declaring their objection to or by proclaiming what they believe is right through the truth? Well, here's some principles. Number one, the state's authority has limitations on our compliant obedience. Let me say it again. The state's authority has limitations on our compliant obedience. In other words, God trumps the state's authority every time. 
One day, a group of Pharisees tried to trap Jesus with a question on taxes. Here's what they said. Uh, Tell us then, uh, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus replied, show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Matthew 22, verse 17 and following. Now there were numerous denarii coins minted by Caesar throughout the empire, but most of them had a portrait of Caesar on the one side and a portrait of a god or goddess, usually Venus, on the other side. So what is he saying? He's saying, render to God what is God's and to Caesar what is Caesar's. And Caesar does have the right to receive taxes. Paul says the same thing. Verse 6 in our text. But only the God of heaven can command worship. That's the point. Caesar or government has no right to interfere in matters of faith. Clearly, our Lord was indicating that government, while having authority in certain areas of life, does not have absolute authority. It has limited authority. And so our compliance is measured. It's not unconditional. The principle is this. What areas in which Christians must obey God over the state? Well, number one, in the practice of our faith. One of my favorite Old Testament histories is the account of the Hebrew dignitaries who were conscripted into Nebuchadnezzar's service upon the defeat of Jerusalem. Throughout their captivity, Daniel and his three friends were repeatedly faced with the dilemma of obeying the king and his edicts or Obeying God and his law. Remember, first there was the food issue. In which the Hebrew captives were told that they had to eat the king's food. I'm reading scripture. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Daniel 1 verse 8. And the context shows that Daniel had no objection to the other requirements. So we read, then the king ordered Aleph Ashpenaz, (coughs) chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. Naphanas was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Daniel 1, verse 3 and 4. Now, in all of these matters, Daniel complied. As a new, obedient, Babylonian subject of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
But on the diet issue, he chose to obey God over the king. Well, a 10-day trial ended with Daniel and his health, his friends, healthier, stronger than the pagans who ate the king's food. You remember the account? At the completion of their education, we are told in Daniel 1 verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters of his whole kingdom. That was over the food issue. Next came the worship issue. Remember this? Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree that everyone in his kingdom was to worship the golden image that he himself set up out in the plains. His edict said, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Well, the Hebrews refused to comply with that. This so infuriated the king that he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than normal. But the testimony of the Hebrews was this. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Daniel 3, 17 and 18. Boy, talk about a gutsy move of faith. Well, you know how it turned out. It was a glorious outcome. God delivered them and their garments. They came out of that furnace that was heated seven times hotter. And their garments didn't even smell of smoke. And the king reversed himself, saying, let me read you his words, Praise be! To the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command. And were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Daniel Daniel 3 verse 28. Who would have thought? The king reversed himself. Because of three, these three Hebrews uh, stuck to their guns when it came to the worship of God. There was a third incident. It was Daniel's defiance of Darius' edict. Not to pray to any god, but to pray to him for 30 days. That was the new rule. We read now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published... He went home to his upstairs room and three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Daniel 6 verse 10. We all know from reading the context this was a trap set for Daniel. In the practice of our faith we obey God not the state. That's the lesson. 
There are house churches right now in China that defy communist China rule. The house churches are worshiping God. So we obey God in the practice of our faith. Secondly, in the proclamation of our faith. Remember this, the apostles of Christ were commissioned to him, by him rather, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remote regions of the world. And upon Jesus' ascension, they immediately began to proclaim the gospel. But the same religious leaders, the same leaders who had orchestrated the crucifixion of Christ, now arrested Peter and John and warned them not to preach any longer in Jesus' name. They were released, and Peter and John refused to comply. Okay. So the next thing that happened is that all the apostles were imprisoned. And they were arrested and warned again. Their response. Peter as the spokesman. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. They were all then severely flogged and released, yet went away rejoicing that they could suffer for Christ. And Luke tells us day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Acts 5 verse 42. So in the practice of our faith, in the proclamation of our faith, we don't let government silence us. And number three, in the precepts of our faith. No government has the authority to compel us to violate the moral requirements of our conscience, to compel us to commit immoral or wicked deeds. Joseph, excuse me, Joseph was sold by the Midianites to Potiphar. One of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, Genesis 37, 36. Unlike the German men who complied with Hitler's breeding camps to produce an Aryan race, when Potiphar's wife put the moves on him, he replied, No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then I could, could I do this wicked thing and sin against God? Genesis 39, verse 9. And his refusal cost him his position and freedom and landed him in Pharaoh's dungeon for more than two years. You know the story, how God eventually rescued him when he became the vice-regent of Egypt. When Jehoshaphat was about to make an alliance with Ahab, Ahab was a wicked king in Israel. But he was going to make an alliance with him to go up against Ramoth Galid. All of Ahab's 400 paid prophets gave him a favorable prediction. Go! <laughs> go, for the Lord will give, you it, give, it to you in, give it to you in the king's hand. 
Well, yeah, that was the 400 paid prophets of Jezebel. One lone prophet of God, Micaiah, was then summoned at Jehoshaphat's request. I'm reading scripture. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with their word and speak surely to the favorable outcome. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only... What the Lord tells me. 1 Kings 22, verse 13 and 14. He was being instructed to lie to the king. But he's saying, I can't do that. He trolled the truth. What was the truth? The Lord has declared disaster for you. They have. And what did that get him? Prison. Bread and water. Thrown in the dungeon. In all these areas, the practice of our faith, the proclamation of our faith, the precepts of our faith, we must obey God rather than man. And that will mean civil disobedience at times. For which there will be consequences. Yet in the end, exoneration by God. You can't expect our pagan government to be pro-Christian. Jesus put it this way. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But... Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. And anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet, well, he'll receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man, he will receive a righteous man's reward. Matthew 10, verse 32 and following. So may God grant us all the discernment to tell the difference between sinful defiance of God-ordained government authority and necessary civil disobedience. You're going to have to weigh that out. Civil disobedience, when government exalts itself above God, yes, by requiring us to disown our Savior or to deny our faith. Those are the tests that we bring. Do you have a faith that you would die for? I ask myself the same question. A love for God over love of life? It's the only faith that pleases God. Last book of the Bible, Revelation 12, verse 10 and 11 says, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For 
the accuser of our brothers, Satan, has been hurled down. Yet they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, by speaking out. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And Jesus put it this way, Do not fear those who kill the body. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. As Christians, we shouldn't be short-sighted. We should be players for the long haul. We should be able to see the end from the beginning because God has told us what's going to happen. It's not easy to stand for Christ in a hostile environment, but stand we can do. And we have these examples that we've looked at today in the Old Testament. Heat the furnace seven times hotter than normal. We'll make you Hebrews bow the knee to the new worship center. It was so hot, you remember, that the servants who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, the servants were killed by intense heat. No, not because they went into the furnace. Just being around the furnace door was so hot it killed the servants. But these three Hebrews stood on solid ground, the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember Nebuchadnezzar looked in the furnace and said, hey, wait, whoa, didn't we throw three people in there? But I see, I, th- I see four. There's one in there that's, um, he's like the son of God. Right, Nebuchadnezzar. You got it right. God was there to protect his three servants. But you know, they said it best, even if he doesn't deliver us, even if he doesn't protect us, we're not bound down to your false God out in the plain. Go ahead and take our lives. That's faith, brethren. That's trusting Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these Old Testament saints that shame us at times. They do. We think we have it tough. We have it easy living in a democracy, living in a country where the laws govern the land and people can't just come in at willy-nilly and take your life because you're a Christian. Though in the past that was done. How long we shall be protected from an on, on repeating of that I don't know it could change overnight but for the present day we rejoice in the fact that you have built a hedge about us and protect us hedge or no hedge we need to be faithful to you I pray that we shall 
You said it best, Lord, that if we deny you before men, you're going to deny us before the Father. And that would be eternal judgment. Thank you for your great sacrifice. Thank you for shedding your blood. Thank you for being the Savior of sinners. Reaching down, grabbing hold of us, pulling us out of the pit, and placing us on the solid rock, who is Jesus yourself. Help us to see these truths, and may they stand with us in the, in the days of persecution. If things are ever do change for the worse, we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 472. 572, excuse me. 572. I picked this hymn because we need to appreciate how blessed we are to be citizens in America. Yes, things could change overnight and historically um, things can happen rapidly, just boom like that. You can't sit on your laurels and think, oh, well, it'll always be that way. We need to be people of prayer. Sometimes worry about my grandkids and what um, America will be like for them. Maybe you have similar thoughts. But we need to be vigilant and stand for Christ in all the areas of our culture. Not only for ourselves, but for our heritage. Number 572, let's stand and we'll sing America the Beautiful.
God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Lord, we do thank you for our country. <clears throat> we think back to its early history, and it was a bloody time. A lot of people died. Thousands of people died. Men strove with all of their strength, putting their fortunes on the line, their homesteads on the line, their families in jeopardy. Why? To bring freedom from oppression and tyranny. To have a new state, a new government. And we are... <clears throat> The recipients of that struggle and our kids with us. Lord, may we build the future for them as well, as well as it was built for us, remembering that what is founded upon the rock of Jesus can withstand the centuries of time. We thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ, that he's King of kings and Lord of lords, and nothing happens to us or our government or country without your bidding. And we praise you for that. You love us. You care for us. You have built a shield around us. You protect us. And we love you for it. Now dismiss us with thy blessing, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We are dismissed. <clears throat>